Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. So I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor of the podcast, Thrive Market. As many of you know, I recently became a dad. My wife, Colleen, and I have an eight-month-old baby girl, Ellie. It's not an exaggeration when I say that as a new parent, Thrive Market has been a complete lifesaver, which is why I'm so excited that we've teamed up with them to offer you $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership. Yep, you heard that right, $60 of free groceries. It's a crazy good deal and it's going to save you a ton of money on food and products that'll make you feel absolutely amazing. And you can get all the details by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. Again, thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. If you haven't heard of Thrive Market, it's an online marketplace that's made up of 100% healthy and organic products, the type of premium food, household cleaners, and bathroom products you'd see on MBG. Except on Thrive, everything is 25 to 50% off retail price. They do this by taking out the middleman. They work with brands directly and then pass those savings on to their customers. For Colleen and I, the convenience has been a huge part of it. Everything on Thrive Market is hyper-curated, so we're not scrolling through endless lists trying to find the one or two brands that meet our admittedly stringent standards. In Brooklyn, where we live, you often find yourself going to one store for collagen powder, another store for organic soap, another store for the right brand of BPA-free canned beans. It can take hours. And as someone running a major wellness media company, that's time I simply don't have. Thrive Market is one-stop shopping. Everything on the site is amazing, but beyond that, you can click to sort by vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, paleo, etc. You can even sort by more out there things. For instance, as you know, we're big into gut health on MBG. And as you might not know, Colleen is actually a big snacker. So on Thrive Market, you can go to the snack section and click to filter by snacks that contain probiotics. That was how we actually discovered the farmhouse culture kraut crisps, which contain billions of probiotics and are dangerously good. Check them out at thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen. We've also been loving the lifestyle categories. Browsing the mom section was how Colleen stumbled across the organic gripe water that's been a game changer for Ellie's teething pain. I didn't even know what gripe water was, to be honest, and I definitely didn't know that there was an organic version. But thanks to Thrive Market, we now have a happy baby on our hands. And get this, it's normally $12.50 at your local health food store, but only $8.50 on Thrive Market. We recently held our annual Revitalize event in Arizona, where we debuted our new motto, You, We, All. At MBG, we think it's so important to reap the benefits of wellness on an individual level. Sure, we all want to feel amazing and live our best lives, but recently, we've really focused on expanding that message. We believe that wellness can change the world and that people who feel good can affect amazing change, which is why I'm so excited to hear about Thrive Market's one-for-one program. For everyone that signs up, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher to help make healthy living affordable for everyone. Okay, so here's the deal. Right now, you can get up to $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. I'd start in the staple section where you'll find the kind of wellness essentials that we recommend on Mind Buddy Green daily, and then work your way out from there, depending on your own needs and preferences. 
Keep in mind, all of their prices are already up to 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra $60 free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mybuddygreen. But be careful with the Kraut Crisps, though. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, now let's get into today's episode. Climbing is definitely experiencing a renaissance right now, and that's largely because of our next guest, Jimmy Chin. Jimmy's an American professional climber, mountaineer, skier, director, and photographer. If it's outside and extreme, chances are Jimmy does it. Not only does Jimmy climb the mountain, but he captures these moments through his beautiful photography and his amazing film, Meru, which everyone must watch, and is one of the most inspirational guys walking the planet right now. We have the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Jimmy Chin. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah. For, for a guy who's all over the world, it's such an honor to have you in our office here today and sitting down with us. Yeah, no, this is great. And so th- there's so there's a lot to cover with you. So so we're gonna we're gonna get right into it. Cool. And so you grew up in Minnesota, and so talk to me about climbing and, and how your love for climbing began. Yes, I grew up in yeah, I guess South Central Minnesota. Mankato is a small town university town my parents were librarians there and there wasn't much climbing around i was gonna say it's a climbing hotbed you know (laughs) no it's not it's you know you can walk you can drive 10 minutes out of town and you know you've got 360 degrees of cornfields pretty much but climbing came later in life for me i did start skiing at a very young age I did know that I loved being outside. We had this ravine behind my house that I, you know, spent a lot of time running around in. But I think my first time even thinking about climbing was on a summer vacation. My parents were, you know, every summer we would drive to a national park and we went out there to Glacier National Park. Sure. I was probably like, seven or eight and I remember looking up at the mountains and thinking wow those are those are like well first of all I was like blown away they were so beautiful and I was you know thinking about why wondering why my parents would ever choose to live somewhere other than you know (laughs) here and I, I remember thinking that's what mountain climbers do they climb these mountains and it totally made sense to me for some reason that that would be, you know, an incredible thing to do. And so when did you start? So you're like eight years old, seven, eight years old at this point. Yeah, so then uh, I started climbing when I was uh, 17, okay. 18, yeah. So a lot of time has passed. But you're, are you holding that, that image tight in your mind? I want to get back to that. Yeah, I, I did. You know, like my first summer after my freshman year in college, I drove straight back to Glacier National Park. Uh, I started spending a lot of time in Joshua Tree mm-hmm. and Yosemite on all the breaks uh, that I had. It just captured my imagination. It, you know, really fulfilled this hunger for, you know, not just looking at landscapes, but actually interacting with them. It fulfilled the hunger for adventure. The lifestyle of it was really appealing to me you know it was nomadic you followed the seasons you had this little kind of tribe that traveled around with with you and 
or you with them. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And so at this point, like, are you just teaching yourself to climb? You go into classes, you find a mentor, or you're just like, what does that look like in the early days of you climbing? Yeah, I think it's it's changed a lot, even in the last five years, 10 years. But when I first started climbing, you know, I didn't have any instruction. You read all these different books from, you know, guys like John Long and Yvonne Chouinard and you kind of applied them and, you know, hopefully you figured it out because, you know, obviously the, the consequences of, of not figuring it out can be very high in climbing. But climbing is interesting in that way. You know, there's a lot more climbing gyms and things available and instruction available now. Uh, but back then when I was just starting, you know, you were, you were experimenting a bit, but that's what I liked about it. You had to improvise, you had to be creative, you had to, you know, figure it out. But, you know, eventually, you know, a lot of that knowledge is passed down by, by mentors in the kind of, you know, climbing world. So, so I want to parallel path this cause you're also <laughs> an amazing photographer and filmmaker. So like climbing, okay, your, your love for climbing is growing and then walk me through when, when does the artistic uh, side start to occur, or is that going on at the same time? Yes, yeah, so I really threw myself at climbing for a few years, and then after college, I, uh, you know, like any good climbing bum, moved into the back of my car and drove to Yosemite, you know, and started spending a lot of time in what we call the valley. Yep. And, you know, I think... Yeah, if you're going to be a pro surfer, you go to the North Shore, you surf pipeline, you know, you have to cut your teeth out there. And and if you want to be a, a serious climber, you got to put your time in the valley. So I moved out there and started climbing and, you know, just meeting a lot of the, the people there and, you know, eventually befriending a lot of really, really incredible climbers uh, some of the best of our generation, but at the time you don't really see that, you know, they're just your friends, you know, guys like Dean Potter and Timmy O'Neill and women like Steph Davis and Beth Rodden. And, you know, you're just in, you're in that tribe. Um, so I, uh, was actually climbing with a really good friend of mine, Brady Robinson, who's now the, the executive director at the access fund, which you know promotes protecting climbing areas and uh, is you know great organization but he was my in a way my first climbing mentor and and peer and he uh showed me how to use his camera and I took a photo with it and he was event he was selling the photos and he eventually you know sold one of the photos and that photo was mine I took uh the money and I I bought a camera with it and I I always think it's funny because you know I have so many friends that are photojournalists and great artists and you know just have noble aspirations when they started as a photographer but when I started I just remember thinking wow I only have to take one photo a month and I can live like this for the rest of my life because <laughs> um, they paid me like five hundred dollars for it which you know when you're living on beans and rice so you were pretty good to get that like so you were self essentially self-taught to some degree yeah i mean after yeah i I'd, I'd never taken a photography class before but 
And still haven't to this day. I mean, I've gone to a seminar <laughs> once, uh, and it was actually really influential. Um, but no, it was self-taught. I don't know. Composition came very easily to me. I've thought about it a lot. I've, I've always wondered if it was because we had these Chinese landscape paintings in my house hmm. that I looked at, and I also, you know, my parents made me write Chinese calligraphy really, really early on in my life, and study it when I was really young and I think I often attribute to that because you know Chinese calligraphy has a lot to do with the attention to details insane yeah and then there's a lot of balance and you know it's it's uh flow and all these different things that I think influenced how I how I look at things visually so you're climbing and you're so you leave college you're climbing you're taking photographs what do your parents say oh yeah (laughs) well So it's pretty classic. My parents, Chinese immigrants from China, pretty stereotypical, like, uh, emphasis on academics. My mom started me playing the violin when I was three and a half. You know, I played through all the way through high school and the symphony as well, um, the high school and local symphony. My dad, pretty classic martial arts. You know, I studied martial arts from, I don't, you know, I don't remember not studying martial arts you know um and competed in that and i swam competitively for 10 years as well all the way through high school a lot of individual type of sports so there was like a big focus on you know excellence and all these different things and when i finished college i studied international relations and i i you know explained to my parents hey look i'm just gonna take a year off and I'm going to climb and I'm going to ski full time and kind of like get it out of my system. Of course, they were very, very skeptical. And, uh, I ended up living out of the back of my car, which was this like 1989 Subaru loyal, like baby blue, you know, what (laughs) year was this? Uh, this is 1996. Okay. And, uh, it, you know, one year turned into two, two turned into three. You know, I basically lived out of that thing from 21 to 28. Seven years without paying rent. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, you know, that by that time I was going on expeditions. Uh, I'd picked up my first sponsor. So you're having success, though. Like a couple mm-hmm. of years in, you're starting to see traction. You're selling, like... Yeah, I'm selling photos. Uh, I got picked up. By the North Face in, I think, 2000, 2001, wow. 2000. So uh, I had a sponsorship. I had a couple other smaller sponsorship deals. But my main thing was putting together expeditions because basically, you know, I, I was climbing in Yosemite, but then I started looking beyond Yosemite. I was thinking, okay, well, I want to take what I've learned here and I want to go on like a really, I want to go on really big adventures. I want to go to the Himalaya. I want to go to the Karakoram and experience all of these things that I've read about. And, you know, so being kind of nomadic was great because I would leave on these two, three month expeditions. So what in this process do you say to yourself or you say to your parents, like, look, like, I think I'm doing okay here. I think I'm going to make it. I think there's there's a a career, a way of life for me that you guys don't have to worry about me. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> it took a while. I mean, they were mortified. And I, honestly, that was the hardest part about it because 
you know, I, I didn't feel like they trusted me and I didn't feel like they believed in me because they were totally against what I was doing. And I would call my sister sometimes and check in and be like, how, how are mom and dad doing? And she'd say, mom just keeps calling and saying, I've raised a homeless man. <laughs> and, you know, they were just, they just couldn't make, you know, they couldn't figure out what I was doing. And, you know, my mom would say, like, there's no word in Chinese for what you do. Of course we're worried, you know. It's not, you know, because as far as I, you know, was taught growing up, it's like you could be a doctor, a lawyer, sure. you know, business person, professor, um, stay in academia or yeah. whatever. There's, there's the, the tracks they had in mind for me were pretty narrow. So here I was, like, and, and then that was the fight for me. That was, like, more than being a climber and trying to start photography, the battle was kind of like breaking out of, you know, that pressure and, and take, take going on my own path and figuring out, figuring out what that path was. Cause it's non-traditional and it's, it's kind of fringe for anybody. Yeah. You know, well back then too, in the nineties, you know, I remember when I graduated in 98, like if you went to college, you went to good school. It's like people became, you know, we said doctors, lawyers or finance. And mm-hmm. like that was, or that was pretty much it. It's like, that's what people did. Media wasn't what it, what it was, what it no. is today where you had exposure to all the, there were no entrepreneurs or no. startup. Like that just wasn't, it's like, okay, like I have friends who do this. Maybe this is cool. It was hard to break out of that mold, I think for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so in this process, so, you know, you're climbing, you're taking photographs, like, what were you like, what was the vision for you back then? Were you just like taking it day by day? Or were you saying like, well, I want to climb this or I want to do that? Or like, what's, did you have this, like knowing how far you've come and we'll, we'll get to the arc of what you've done and, and your, your film and, and everything, like what, what were you thinking back then in terms of where you wanted to be? Or were you just like, I'm enjoying this, I'm living in the moment, this is amazing, I love what I do. I was definitely living in the moment. I was definitely, you know, completely engaged with what I was doing. You know, I I couldn't imagine doing anything else that was as exciting, as meaningful, that fed, you know, a particular hunger. Uh, But the vision for me was really the kind of, great icons of adventure and the great climbers and seeing what they did like I really read a lot about you know all the different expeditions out there and when I the thing about climbing in Yosemite for me is that was the vehicle for me to see the world Uh, photography became the vehicle for me to see the world as well but it was also the vehicle that opened my eyes to, you know, really taking risks uh, in terms of, you know, intellectually as well, and I, I don't know, even though spiritually as well as physically, right? So I really, uh, and, and what I mean by that is like, when I first showed up in Yosemite and looked up at Al Cap, I was like, there is no way that thing is just it was mind-blowing it's so big you know let alone you think like years later some guy would free climb it yeah well that was very (laughs) far 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 far. that wasn't even i couldn't even that wasn't even within the realm of possibility but 
you know, you climb different formations and you get better and better and better. And then eventually you get up on El Cap and then you climb El Cap and then you climb El Cap in a day. And you're like, wow, you know, like, this is incredible. I'd never had that experience where, you know, you look at something that looked impossible, worked towards it, made it happen, moved beyond it. And then all of a sudden you have this kind of confidence, like, okay. So, so what's that feeling when you get to the top of a mountain, whether it's El Cap or or just any mountain, like what's that feeling that you experience? Can you describe that for people? I just feel like it's deep satisfaction you get when you finish something and uh, when you have to put an extraordinary amount of effort into something, the satisfaction is, you know, greater. I also just love that sense of adventure you know when you start up at the bottom and you're like i'm not sure if i can do this and then you know there's a thousand and one reasons to turn around on any given day and you choose not to and you persevere and you get you know up something and there's there's all kinds of different aspects to it there's you know kind of creative problem solving and um, it's really physical, it's like fatigue, like you have to overcome all these different challenges. Uh, so when you do get to the top, it's just, it's, it's an incredible feeling and it's, it's very addictive. Uh, I think something else that happens if you're not just soloing or by yourself, but you know, there's an incredible sense of camaraderie with your partner. Um, especially when you have these experiences where you know that the only way you could have done something was because you know um the uh the teamwork required got you there and that that feeling is is also really incredible so you're at the top that amazing feeling is that like a couple minutes or is it a couple days or like when are you just up there taking it all in like are you feeling connected to spirit god or are you just soaking it all in and then when do you sit like and, and does something flip at a certain point like okay now i gotta think about going down and yeah. or like how long does that like what is that what is that like what's going on in your it head it really depends i mean i've it never lasts long enough <laughs> that's that's what i can say but you know i think over the years as you do a lot more climbs and a lot more expeditions you learn to also appreciate you know all the different parts of it so the process is certainly something i love to like immerse myself in and now i'm just because i'm much more aware of it you know you're like okay you you know you should enjoy every one of these moments because right these are the moments that you're going to look back on. These are the moments that have meaning. And I've been through that experience so many times that it's, it's taught me to kind of really be present. So it is, it is the journey. It's the whole, it's not just about the top. It's the whole journey along the way. Yeah, absolutely. From inception of an idea and like researching and putting together the team. Um, I mean, the entire process for me now is enjoyable. So like, Doing what you do and climbing these, you know, climbing the mountains that you climb, and we're going to talk about Meru. Just, just that that feeling, that 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 intensity. Like, the, does everyday life, like in New York, just feel like boring? Like when you have something so amazing and so spectacular and, and such a euphoria, does like every day, like walking the streets of New York, or just like 
eh, this is really uninteresting to me? Or like, how do you bring yourself down from like such a high uh, and interact on like a daily basis? <laughs> I mean, I find New York incredibly fascinating. There's so much energy here. There's so many people doing so many incredible different things. Like I can't even really wrap my head around it on any given day, you know, the people that I encounter or meet or have dinner with or have a conversation with, I mean, it's such a insanely broad range that kind of intellectual brain trust in this city is, uh, it's completely mind boggling. So I, I actually feel invigorated by the city in a lot of ways. I don't last very long here. I, I mean, I need to see the horizon and I need to be in the mountains to get my fix. But when I'm in the city, it's 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 pretty exciting. Like, I, I usually pack it full of, you know, there's always someone to see or visit or catch up with or there's always meetings and, you know. Podcasts. Podcasts. It's, it's pretty awesome. And so you mentioned risk. Yeah. Talk to me about risk and what that means to you. I think risk, I think about this a lot, but I think risk in a lot of ways is meaning. I think taking risks is what moves you forward, you know, and you don't take, I'm, I'm excluding stupid risks like <laughs> hold my beer, watch this type of risks. But, um, well, what do you say to people? Like some people will say like climbing is risky, you risk your life, but like you don't see like everything you do very calculated and perfection and talk to me about like how you measure risk i think the first thing to understand is risk is relative right so uh by that i just mean that you know what may look very risky to other people is actually not at all risky for some people based on your skill level and your comfort and whatever that activity is so you know when people see someone climbing and they're like that's insane they're crazy I always find that to be a total misperception because they don't understand the safety systems. They don't understand that person's experience. They don't understand, you know, what exactly is is happening. You know, risk is easily misperceived, but I see risk as a vehicle as well for moving forward. And by that, I just mean, you know, if you don't take risks in your life, you kind of you're static you know right and a lot of the people I work with are often perceived as like extreme risk takers but when you see how they manage risk you understand oh actually these aren't extreme risk takers these are the most highly calculated people in the world because in that universe the whole kind of idea is that you take risks and the better you are at calculating them the closer you can take it to the very very razor's edge without going over it i actually think that you know people in the top of their field in any vocation are often the people who are like the very best at taking risks or calculating risks Mm -hmm. whether that's finance or medicine or science or you know you you're you're really creative with how you manage the risk you are extraordinarily 
good at calculating risk because you have a hyper awareness of like your environment and all the different right. factors that are, might influence you know the outcome and so you know i think that I, I love looking at risk i think there's so many different facets to it that are interesting and how much of it is it the art and science like the art being like your gut your intuition and then the science the preparation the measurements the studying like how what's that balance for you you know if i put it in the kind of context of an expedition or a climb there are certain things that you can manage that you can have control over and then there's certain things that you don't have control over good metaphor for life yes so the weather you just can't get too worked up about the weather because the weather is what it is. Can you manage it? Kind of. You go in the right season. You look at historically when there are high winds and when there aren't high winds. You know, there's certain parts of it you can manage, but when you get there, the weather is going to do what it's going to do. But so you, you try to manage that a little bit, but ultimately like, it's not in your control. But there are certain things like equipment, your fitness, your diet. You know, these are things that you can prepare with a lot of awareness and intensity and preparation research. You know, so you, you want to make sure, you know, that the things that you do have control over and that you have agency over, that you make sure those are really well prepared. Sure. So talk to me about that, that prep. So you mentioned fitness, diet. How do you prepare mentally? What does that look like for you? Preparation for me involves a lot of kind of rituals. Um, there, in terms of like physically training for a climb, you know, you you evaluate what the objective looks like, what kind of climbing is involved. You know, you look at the history of a climb. You think about who's been up there before, what their reputation is, how good were they. Will you call guys? You get on the phone and say, sure. Like, hey, yeah, sure if it's if it's a big serious objective and you try to train for it the best that you can because there's no you don't necessarily have a coach you know so it's really like you have to kind of intuit like what it's going to take and you try to you know do everything you can to prepare yourself that means a lot of time in the mountains um for me just to be really, really comfortable. Um, there's transitions with equipment so that you're just really dialed, you know. Uh, things add up very quickly. Like if you are on a climb that has 40 pitches on it, um, which is like a rope length, and at every belay, you spend an extra five or 10 minutes, you know, you multiply that by 40. And if your weather window is only two hours to for the summit weather window then you've missed it you know yeah. so it's like there's there's so you try to you know get your systems really dialed in terms of like how you exchange equipment with your partner and there are just all these little tricks that you can do to to be efficient but diet is a huge one you know getting ready on the expedition i have morning rituals you know what do you I do like to you know, when, I, when I'm in training mode or even when I'm traveling, I wake up, I usually try to do 20 minutes of meditation. That's right. You learn about Tom Knowles, right? Yep. By Tom, my good friend Tom. I make a smoothie. 
Um, What's in the smoothie? I usually do a banana, um, a stack of frozen blueberries. I use Hana One, sure, uh, which is an ostrich. It's like a this incredible concoction. It's got turmeric and ghee, and Hana has a really incredible ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I put some yogurt, almond milk, and sometimes I'll throw kale in there. Yep. And uh, just bomb that thing together. Do you have a nickname for your smoothie? Is this the <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't. Great one right now. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, the Hana smoothie. I don't know. So you do that every so you meditate, you do your smoothie, and then what else in terms of diet? Like how do you how do you what what makes you feel good? I try not to eat like a huge lunch or anything. I kinda graze through the yeah. day. But if it's like a big mountain day, you know, I'm kind of eating I usually have to have like real food. I don't love bars. Sure. So I usually have like nuts and I'll bring like a little sandwich or something. So do you well. lean like vegetarian or paleo or you're omnivore, eat everything? I'm like an you... omnivore. Okay. Yeah. I mean, with, with the amount of travel and where I go, I'm kind of, you know, but I, I try to eat a fairly balanced diet, uh-huh. not that much red meat. And what about mental preparation? Are you thinking about the mountain? Like, are you visualizing? Do you put a picture up in your room? Like, what do you do to start to get in the, the zone, so to speak? Or are you just always in the zone? Uh, I kind of am always in that space. I would say, you know, one of the things that I always think about is that, you know, Conrad, my anchor, who's like a mentor of mine, he used to always say the best way to get in shape is never get out of shape. I think that is useful in terms of mental fortitude as much as physical fortitude. It's like the best way to kind of like keep your mental mm-hmm. clarity and, and, and physical shape is staying on top of it and never letting it kind of slide. I like that. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. So you mentioned Conrad, and so let's talk about Meru, which is kind of how I discovered you. This, this, it came recommended by a few people, and then I caught it. And it's, it's, it's one of the most amazing documentaries I've ever seen, and it's like a film for me now that whenever it's on cable, I just watch it. But I was like, why are you watching this again? It's like I've watched it like five times, and I'm not even a climber, but my father-in-law is. And was always fascinated by him and like his his love for climbing and uh, it, it's what really lights him up. And I saw the film and, and to me the the film was just so spectacular for for many reasons. Uh, the hero's journey, the arc, this impossible climb, and it was just amazing. And you don't have to be a climber to to love this film. So I I want to I want to hear. We don't want to give the whole film away, but to set the stage, you, you know, talk to me about the idea for Meru and 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 the climb and the evolution of the film. And sure, well, just to give listeners a, a little bit of context, so Meru is this mountain in northern India. It's not, you know, very well known by. The it is main- now, my friend. Yes, maybe now, <laughs> but. Um, you know, it's not like Everest, you know, sure. if you, you don't have to be a climber to know what Everest is, but Meru was kind of not very well known, but it was known within the kind of inner circle of core, you know, 
alpine mountain climbers and so uh the reason it's it was a notorious mountain was because it had seen more attempts and failures than any other climb in the himalayas and so you know in the kind of climbers universe the more people that have failed on the mountain the more compelling the, the more attractive becomes. it becomes yeah so <laughs> just kind of a breakdown quickly like the the reason the mountain is so challenging is because it basically requires every discipline of climbing from snow and ice and mixed and rock and aid and big wall and you know there's all these different disciplines it's like a shark fin too the top of the yeah. mountain starts to go yeah the direction you don't want it to go yes <laughs> it's extremely overhanging and steep and the way that the mountain is set up is that basically it's set up in the worst possible way it's stacked in the worst possible way because you want to be able to go really light and fast when you're alpine climbing and the bottom is light and fast alpine climbing style of mountain but then it's capped by this huge wall which requires a ton of big wall climbing gear which is really heavy so that means that you have to climb the lower half of this alpine style climb with all this equipment. It was an extraordinary challenge. Uh, Conrad, my mentor, was you know obsessed with climbing this mountain. He'd been thinking about it for 20 years. His mentor, Mug Stump, had been wanting to climb this mountain for probably 20 years as well. Mugs passed away, I think, I don't know, almost 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Wow. And and so Conrad was kind of like carrying the flag and, and wanted to try this mountain. And Muggs had tried it multiple times. Conrad had tried it. So Conrad asked me to join him in 2008 to attempt the peak. And uh, we went off and tried it with my other friend, Renan Ozturk. And so you're like, and let's film it too. Yeah. <laughs> and so Not we're only are we going to try to make, you know, do this impossible climb, let's document it. Bringing a camera is just at that point my MO, you know. I'd been shooting my expeditions since the very first expedition that I'd gone on originally with photos, but then I started filming as well. And I had some really incredible mentors in the film world as well. Uh, Rick Ridgway and David Brashears were, you know, incredible adventure filmmakers. And uh, so I, I started filming, but, you know, to be honest, like we weren't filming for a feature documentary. We were just, right. you know, covering it and shooting it kind of for fun. And then that evolved over time. As you see in the film, the story kind of goes beyond just this one expedition to Meru. And uh, really, we made the film. You know, I didn't really decide to make the film until 2000 and. 11 and started piecing together all this different footage that we had shot over the years and so did you know and we don't want to give away the film we want people sure. to watch it but like did you know this is really interesting because it's a different type of documentary film we were talking about this earlier you know you, you do one doc where it's like okay here's the script we know what it's going to look like we want to capture but you're literally this is a, this is a journey where there are lots of twists and turns you don't know how it's going to end up yeah, well, it's life. Yeah. You know, you don't know how it's going to end up. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And sometimes life can throw some pretty interesting curveballs at you. So uh, we just happen to be filmmakers. The film kind of evolved after 
a series of different, I'll call them happenings in our lives. And uh, I think in retrospect, I started to see that this was a pretty interesting story. And I knew what I wanted the film to say, and I knew what I wanted the film, you know, how I wanted people to feel watching the film. And that, that was like the inspiration. There was like, I, there was a vision. I knew what I wanted. And so uh, I started working with my wife, Chai. Yeah, I was going to say, and something happened in, in, in that process. You met your soon-to-be wife. Yeah, I met a filmmaker named Chai. And, you know, she's an incredible documentary filmmaker. And, and she really brought some objectivity to it and uh, really came in uh, with a good vision for structure and narrative. And together we were able to cobble this thing together. And, you know, we were really pleasantly surprised how well it did. Well, it's amazing. And anyone out there, whether you're a climber or not, you just love great inspirational films. You got to watch it. It's stunning. It's amazing. Thank you. And so I also want to talk about being a parent. So you got married. Mm-hmm. So fall in love, get married. You're a parent now. You have two kids. How has that changed you? And, and how you climb and how you look at life and, and how you think about risk? Yeah, I think, you know, the way that I, it certainly affected my risk calculus, but I would say that experience and age and time had already shifted, you know, my my risk calculus, just seeing a lot of different things go wrong, losing a lot of close friends, you know, being in a lot of situations where things have gone sideways, it's you know, you, you become more conservative. Uh, and I don't think I was even able, I wouldn't have been able to have a family or think about having a family until I got to a certain point with, you know, my risk calculus. And so I would say that the experience and time and age really were the things that kind of got me into a place where I could even think about having a family. But then, you know, having a family is such an incredible experience. It's a lot of responsibility. You know, you have to step outside of yourself. You have to think about, you know, the needs of your children. And you want to spend time with them. And you want to grow old with them. And be able to experience life with them. So it, it definitely changes, you know, the kind of risks uh, I'm willing to take. But I also still, you know, I probably by most people's standards take a lot of risks so you mentioned things go sideways is there is there like one moment in particular where you're like holy shit like this i don't know if i'm gonna get out of this or or were there a couple of those moments or yeah i've been in quite a few situations where you know the outcome looked you know fairly serious uh but certainly the biggest event in my life was getting caught in this avalanche i got caught in what's called a class four avalanche class kind of denotes the size and severity of an avalanche class four avalanche is very serious you know most people don't i don't think people ever survive class four avalanches or very very rarely 
it's you know essentially a class four avalanche means that it can take out buildings and trees and cars and wow and trains and you know very how many classes are there up to five okay so cla- that, class okay. five is basically like what happens in the alps when there's a hundred year climax avalanche and it takes out a town oh my god yeah so class four is just below that and you know i went two thousand feet and you know i had plenty of time you know you're going about 80 miles an hour through the mountains uh down the mountain and uh you know, you're, you're really, you know, I, I just knew I was going to die. Wow. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't any doubt. You're like, okay, this is it. There's no way I'm going to survive this because I could see how big it was. I, you know, when I was younger in my twenties, like I taught avalanche courses and I'm around avalanches a lot. I have, you know, studied, you know, snow science and you just, you know, when I saw the size of it and I saw the terrain I was in, I was in kind of a terrain trap, it's called, and I was like, okay, well, I had kind of this out-of-body experience where, you know, I was just thinking about, um, you know, I just, it was like a very calm conversation with myself, like, oh, it was like an observation, like, this is, this is it, this is how I'm going to die. I always wondered what it was going to be and how it was going to be. And... As kind of reflective almost and then I remember thinking well I'm not actually I'm not ready to die and um and it's like I kind of like re-entered like the physical realm and then uh and then it was more of like a fight wow how long like what was that this is a matter of seconds minutes hours it's hard to say like you just lost space and time space and time changed for sure yeah i had all kinds of different experiences in it you know they say your life flashes in front of your eyes i don't know if it it didn't doesn't feel like it flashes there was like uh, like well i mean this i was also traveling 2000 vert so wow it was like there was some time to contemplate and then there's a period in the middle where i like you know was buried deep 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 underneath the snow and I was getting crushed. I could feel the velocity. And then there was a moment when I kind of got pushed to the top. And I was looking around. And I was sitting on top of it. And we, we call avalanches the magic carpet ride sometimes because it looks <laughs> like you're on a carpet. Right. Except for this carpet was like a few hundred yards across either direction. And just kind of undulating over the terrain it was like riding the most massive tidal wave um it was really incredible and uh and i i ended up at the bottom you know just popping out at the toe of this thing after riding it for 2000 feet and uh somehow survived it with no no broken bones wow walked away from it so when you get out of something like that, do you say like, whoa, I'm going to take a breather or you go right back at it? Like, how does that affect you mentally? And, just, and when that happens to some guys, are they just, I'm done? Or Yeah, I think it has a different impact on different people. You know, I think that uh, I was just having a conversation with this great writer, a psychologist at UPenn named Adam Grant. Sure, great guy. But uh, yeah, we were talking about post-traumatic stress 
you know, but then also this idea of post-traumatic growth, um, Mm. because it really forced, you know, we, we really avoid thinking about death and you find all these distractions and ways not to think about it. But in the world I live in, you're kind of, your mortality is kind of almost ever present in a way, you know, and I, I think it's I think it's important to look at it. I think it's important to examine it uh, because upon reflection of of your mortality, it can really inform your decisions uh, around life. I think. So, is fear of death and uh, does it motivate you? Does it inform you? Like, how do you, how do you look at it? I know you've lost a lot of friends, and like, how does that? Does it make you a better climber, a better person? Does it change perspective? Does it do all the above? In a way, you have to be at peace with death because it's, it's going to happen to everyone. Going to happen, you know, and you don't know when, and you don't know how. But you know, I've also been reading uh, this book from Sogyal Rinpoche called "The Book of the Living and the Dying," mm. and you know, it's there's some suggestion in there that essentially in a way you have this whole life to prepare for this moment, this really transformative moment um, when you cross over whatever your religious belief is to another dimension or it it extinguishes or you come back as somebody else, but there's this moment when you die and you know, how you prepare for it in life is like fairly significant is, you know, one of the ideas in the book but i'll always kind of be fearful i'll be fearful of death because you're always fearful of the unknown sure maybe not everybody because <laughs> there's probably a few people out there who can um who are in that headspace but i think that that sort of preparation and examination of of your mortalities is pretty healthy sure yeah because yeah Something else we we talked about previously was this idea of your body under stress Mm -hmm. and and what it's capable of. So talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, Actually, one more thought on on mortality. I think it I think it makes uh, it clear in an examination of it. It for me it 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 allows me to think of like my priorities. What are what's really important, you know, and how I live my life, knowing. It's very limited. I think that mortality is like the capstone, you know, it's like there. And so it's like how, what kind of life do you want to live until you get there? Sure. Um, so in terms of like pushing your body? Well, yeah, yeah, your body under stress. You know, you were talking earlier about how you're on a climb and you go out, you know, what you're eating, your sleep, like how how far you can actually push the human body. Yeah, I... I absolutely think that, you know, 2017, we as a species aren't required to push ourselves nearly as much as um, our, our bodies are able, capable of handling, you know, uh, in terms of physical stress. And it's just not something we encounter very much. But we've evolved over all this time to actually be able to manage quite a bit of stress. Not existential necessarily, but probably, but like physical in terms of environment, in terms of 
like the lack of food and the lack of water and heat and cold like you can it's it's really incredible to see how far you can push it and on expeditions you you really do see what the body can do and i think you know one of the the incredible things that i've seen happen is just how efficient your body becomes at you know burning very limited resources of fuel essentially how much you can do with how little so you're like eating like like what's an example of like a two-day period if you're up on an expedition or a three-day period what you're consuming in terms of food and water i mean i'm sure i mean your body's also kind of like eating itself at that point but you know at the at the end of like meru i don't want to give it away but i'll just say the first trip (laughs) you know uh we were surviving on it was day 18 and we had brought seven days of food wow so pause for a minute day 18 seven days of food yeah and you guys aren't like you're not packing a lot for those no seven days either so and and our output is incredibly high you know we're 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 doing pretty serious physical tasks for very long hours at well over 20,000 feet so your heart is working extremely hard when you're laying down sure. you know <laughs> your heart rate's like well over 100 just sitting wow. and my resting heart rate down here is like 50 something you know so uh, it's 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 pretty extreme what the body's doing to stay alive just when you're not moving so when you're climbing or like dealing with equipment and hauling a ton of gear you're you're burning uh, a lot of calories but you know we were eating like a small half bowl of oatmeal in the morning and sharing a bar between the three of us during the day and maybe a little piece of parmesan and a little slice of salami you know and and like a lifesaver <laughs> right so wow. so you mentioned this idea of pushing limits and and we talked about this earlier we'll come back to it al capitan and alex honnold what just happened there you want to tell people about that and and you were you were part of this sure yeah i just finished filming for the last two years my wife and i she's the co-director and co-producer uh chai have been working on it for two years almost um filming with alex being on an expedition climber is a great preparation for being a documentary filmmaker because you just have to you have no idea what the outcome is and you just kind of have to accept that by like putting one foot in front of the other and taking these certain series of actions you'll you'll end up with a film and so alex uh honald is the you know greatest free soloist of all time uh he he basically he climbs without ropes and uh is just an extraordinary person and he had this dream of free soloing el capitan which is this three thousand foot wall in yosemite and i'd say that it's uh you know it's the size of i guess equivalent to the empire state building with the chrysler building stacked on top of it wow it's like 3,000 feet, and it's extremely difficult to climb with a rope. Uh, so 
about five or six weeks ago, you know, Alex free soloed El Cap after years of preparation. And I'll just say this, uh, the the film is tentatively called Solo. I think that's probably going to stick. I like that. That's a good one. But uh, it will come out in 2018 and I hope people take a look at it. Wow. So how long, how long would that, how long did that climb take him? It took him about four hours. Wow. Yeah. So what is the future of, you know, I think climbing is so interesting right now. It feels like it's booming and, you know, it is a lifestyle. And in my mind, you know, if we talk about mind, body, green here, it's all the elements, you know, the mental, the physical, the connection to nature. Like what is so special about climbing to you and why do you think that's really resonating in such a big way today? You know, there's a climbing gym down the climbing down the block here in Dumbo, right in the park. Yeah. What's happening? I think, Climbing's really taken off for a lot of reasons. I mean, gym climbing has become its own thing, you know. Uh, and you go to a gym for the first time and you're like, oh, yeah, I can see why. It's it's really social. It's really fun. Uh, there's just the classic experience of climbing that's really addictive, which is you're, you're like creative problem solving with your mind and your body. Right. And you're pushing yourself. And, you know, especially now where it's in a gym, it's really accessible. So there's like, in a way, the appeal of of yoga, you know, like it's very, in some ways, meditative. It's very physical, uh, but it also has this element of risk involved in it, you know, because, you know, you're you're on a rope and you're hanging off of something. So it's exciting. And I, I think that, uh, a lot of people find enjoyment with all those elements and you know I think also that if you want to talk about integrating an integrated lifestyle you know as you become more of a climber there's all these different aspects to it, it in a way it, it, it promotes healthy living it promotes for me it does you know it's like I want to eat better so that I'm in better shape so that I can climb better and you know, there's all these elements that, you know, sure. require you to integrate all these different aspects of life to, to do it. So does anything scare you? Uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I mean, like I'm deathly afraid of goldfish or <laughs> <laughs> I used to be deathly afraid of speaking, public speaking, but the thing that makes me not, I, I'm trying to think what makes me really scared. I mean, standing at the base of like a giant alpine wall in the Himalayas would make me really scared. I'd be scared because <laughs> I know <laughs> how dangerous it is. Um, paddling into a really big, heavy, gnarly wave is scary. I think generally public speaking is fine for me, but if there are really, you know, people that I really re- respect or look up to or my peer group, that can be a little scary for sure. really really intelligent highly intelligent people you know that's a little terrifying one of uh we had the founder you know movember yeah yeah yeah, the founder was on the the podcast this week and he had a great line about like being in rooms with those people he said i learned early on if if you're in a room and you're in the the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room yeah (laughs) no absolutely (laughs) and so if you could go back in time and give yourself advice that that 
you know, wandering 20-year-old who's living out of his car, if you could give yourself advice, what would that be? Well, it's interesting because there's parts of my 20-year-old self that I have to remind myself of that, like, I'm still taking advice from, which is to, like, to go for it, you know, Um, and and take the risks and, and, you know, find something that you're passionate about and throw yourself at it. And me speaking to my 20-year-old self would now would probably say, uh, well, part of me wants to say be patient, but then again, I'm like, no, when you're 20 years old, you don't, you don't, you don't want to be patient. You should be going for it, you know? But I think the advice would almost be more of a like encouragement and, and saying, you know, believe in yourself, like, because I think the thing that you struggle or I struggled with was so much doubt really about my ability to do something or I just didn't know where I was going, but I still went for it. But, you know, the doubt was really, really hard. And, uh, I had to like learn that confidence and learn to believe in myself by like, you know, climbing, I think really helped me do that. I think, when I saw that you could take these small steps and and take these small risks and kind of like expand your you know your comfort zone slowly but surely that you could kind of accomplish anything so is that what in your mind makes you great like if you take away like the technical side of climbing like if you're able to take a step back from yourself and say like this is why I'm good or or great one of the best mm-hmm. like what is it about you you think that separates you from the tons of other climbers out there who haven't climbed all the mountains you've climbed or had this experience? yeah well i mean there's so many incredible climbers climbing being in the climbing community is very humbling because there's so many good climbers sure. you're never the best climber not even close you know and so i've always you know i was taught always to be humble and to kind of observe and but i think the thing that makes anybody great is just perseverance and determination and patience. I mean, there's talent. Sure. And that can make you great. But, you know, if even if you have talent, um, a lot of athletes don't have the longevity in their careers if they don't, you know, have a strong foundation and just stay at it and determined and trained and you know it's I mean the the most obvious cliched metaphor is like you have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other sure and that's how you get things done I tell students when I've talked at universities that there's actually no way around hard work yeah <laughs> you I know agree. that's just it like you have to grind it out and if you are great you know but make sure that you have purpose um be aware of your intentions why are you doing it i think that's that would probably be something that i would tell my 20 year old self it's like be aware of your intentions figure out why you're doing it if it's meaningful if it has purpose behind it then then yeah you should grind grind it out and so 
the, this world of, you know, quote unquote wellness that we live in today, you know, a lot of people are interested in wellness or are living a healthier lifestyle. Like, what is that? What, what, what do you want wellness to mean in a couple of years? Like, with, with I think climbing plays a, a big role in that for you. But like, how do you see this world evolving? Hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a big question. I think we actually I talked to you about you mentioned a few things yesterday that I actually really believe in as well. And and in some ways, there's roots of what you said in like Confucianism. It's like you know you to 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 change the world you have to change the country to change the country you have to change the the state yeah it goes to the family then it goes to your personal relationships and then it goes to yourself and so you know i mean i think we all want wellness for all of humanity um what does that look like well yeah you do have to start with yourself um, with an, an awareness that, it, you know, in doing so that there's some greater good that you are moving yourself towards by improving yourself. Um, it's not just for yourself, right. you know. I think that's a pretty important distinction to make, you know, and to think about it that way. But, you know, clearly we have some really big challenges with the environment, you know, but again, I think it starts with yourself and like healthy, happy people, I think are very productive in making things happen, sure. you know? So yeah, wellness is, is extremely important, uh, all the way from food, you know, clearly we, we've talked about this too, you know, what you eat, how important, uh, your decisions around food and and how it's harvested or what kind of food it is has an incredible impact on the environment as well. And so the environment, like what are you seeing in the front lines when you're out there and you're really interacting with the environment in a way that, that most people don't like, what do you see that's changed? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, like I get to interact with like the beautiful aspects of the environment and the inspiring parts of it that like really move me. Uh, I'm not on the front lines of a lot of it. Um, I have a lot of friends, photojournalists, who see it a lot. Paul Nicklin, uh, incredible photographer. I mean, a lot of these pristine areas, though, are under threat, whether that's coastline from oil spills or just... I mean, it doesn't have to be that grand. I mean, I'm talking about, like water accessible water in our cities you know like flint michigan isn't an isolated incident you know there's a lot of issues just with getting people clean water in the united states which is kind of you know absurd that we can't have people just getting access to clean water here so i mean there's there's a lot of different issues i don't want it to be a total downer conversation but i mean you know i think that uh that idea of wellness should be all pervasive you know whether that's yourself your family but certainly in the environment as well sure we 100 percent agree my my last question any advice for aspiring climbers out there i mean i think 
trying it out first and seeing if it grabs your attention. The thing that's most important to me and what I think I want in part of my children is it doesn't necessarily have to be climbing or skiing or surfing, although I would love it if they <laughs> enjoyed those sports because I would, you know, I want to be able to go on trips and do all those things with them. But I think the hardest thing, one of the hardest things in life is finding something you're passionate about. And that takes, that's like the big risk, you know, is, is taking, going, trying to find that thing. It, you, it's, it's a very vulnerable space to try to find something that you, you're passionate about, that you love. And then to take the next step of like embracing that and, and going for it. It's been worth it for me. Amen to that. Jimmy Chen, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And we're going to bring you back in 18 with Alex when the film comes out. Okay, that sounds like a deal. (laughs) Thanks so much, everyone.